0: Welcome to World of Das, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, fellow data nerds. My guest today is Gabe Rogel. Gabe is the CEO of Demandbase, a marketing automation system. Gabe, welcome to World of DAS. It's great to be here, Oren. Thanks for having me. Oh yeah, absolutely. Now, um, now Demandbase helps B2B companies find and market to customers better. And, and one of the hard things about most B2B companies is understanding like who's in market currently for one's product. Like how should companies better understand like who who's in market and think through that kind of like funnel funnel system.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean the the customer journey has been disrupted dramatically, right by digital and there's a lot there's a lot of depth to that. but essentially like kind of the old lead based model, which is kind of the traditional marketing hands a lead to sales um, that's been blown up you know where marketing kind of goes out and does stuff and tries to get these hand raises and then sales closes it on the on the golf course type thing. So now you know marketing has to go throughout the whole process and sales has to come in earlier. On digital, based on digital signals, right? Because that's where the buying activities happen. There's no lead, and that's where these these signals are becoming more more and more valuable. And one, I think it was one of our SDR leaders basically coined the phrase "intent is the new lead." Right. So there's a there's a lot of different intent signals that indicate an account versus just one person, but multiple people are in account are in market potentially to, to buy your product. And that's become, become really important. Um, uh, you know, in terms of thinking about the, about the funnel, there's the, um, you know, the old model, I think is in a lot of ways represented by the the serious decisions waterfall that probably everybody remembers, which they've since adjusted, but the classical waterfall is kind of like the MQL the marketing qualified, their inquiry that marketing qualified lead, sales accepted lead, and then it becomes pipeline closes and that's all based on a a lead. Now, most companies, modern companies are kind of have a account funnel next to their serious decisions kind of person funnel, which is marketing qualified account and it work, works through in a sim, similar ways. And, and it's important to think about it in
0: that way. If we go back on the intent stuff, like what are some of the core intent signals that you think companies can be using? And then how are they going to bring? Obviously, if someone goes to your website and does a whole bunch of things, that's easy. But- there's, a, there's like Twitter searches and there's like, uh, I went, you know, I, I searched for this and uh, I went to certain content on Forbes.com. There's lots of different intent signals that could be out there. How does one like think about all these different intent signals?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've talked about this for a while. It's like intent as a word has kind of become confusing (laughs) because because there's a lot it's almost a a bunch of different categories in in one sometimes i think about it as like intent is almost like an ingredient and then you have you have models that's like the chef of the 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 ingredients so if you think about it in that way you could kind of put it in three buckets there's there's models that are there to define what your tam is what your total addressable mark market is which is more or less stable then there's models and intent that defines, you know, who who's in market. And then there's models and in, in intent is defines who of your customer base will will spend more, right? And so, in the total adjustable market, it's all often about static signals like, what industry are they in? How large how large is the customer? If you're selling technology, what what's their tech stack? And you know, building models around that. If to find in market and, and like really, I guess what the squarely the term intent tends to mean, is it tends to mean content consumption? You know, it could be content and consumption across all different types of published uh, forms of content, whether it's like social, as you mentioned, or um, the ad bid stream, or Bombora does publisher networks, um, or uh, on your own website. You know, which is you know, as uh, as you know, like the way that demand base actually started was being able to de de anonymize your own website
0: traffic. And how do you think like these signals will 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 shape out? Because yeah, you mentioned Bombora. There's there's obviously your stuff on your own website. There's people that crawl Twitter. G two has like cell searches of people who search for your category, right? So there's all these different places that you can potentially get. Do you think? like a good marketer is going to have to go to like each individual intent stream and figure that out and and then bring it in and then have some sort of model. Or do you think there'll be like an aggregator that aggregates all the intent streams and then the marketer can just consume it and not have to worry about going to each one individually?
1: It depends on the type of business you are. You know, I think, you know, if we talk about, we tend to talk about like mid market versus enterprise or global enterprise, you know, if you're a fast growing mid-market company, limited, but still limited budget. You're probably going to pick a couple of signals that you're going to validate through tests, you know, with your SDR and marketing team that seem to be good good signals. You're going to rely on that signal and your technology to go out with your go-to-market. I think global enterprise is going to be more of like the latter of what you said, like the aggregator. They're going to become aggregators in a lot of ways. Like what you see in these giant enterprises is massive data science teams with data lakes um, pulling together really sophisticated models and bringing in, you know, they, they have the advantage, I guess, of, of being the massive budgets to bring in multiple signals. And, and I, and I think the way, the way models develop on mid-market versus enterprise are going to be very different because enterprises just have more, signal that they can work with and they're never gonna give all that signal to an external aggregator. Whereas I think mid-market maybe will because they have less signal.
0: So it's kind of, that's how I think about a difference between kind of mid-market and enterprise. Yeah, and, and remember, I mean, as you mentioned, demand base started, you know, the initial product was like people would come, you would you would see people that go to your website, you do some, maybe some reverse IP lookup, you would say, okay, this is coming from General Electric or something. Um, and then, you know, we can figure out how to advertise and engage against these quote unquote anonymous users. How do you see this evolving over time? The way I think about it is like, there's going to be, <laughs> I guess the aspiration is like self-driving go-to-market, right?
1: Where either, like I said, at the enterprise level, these these data science teams or a vendor like demandbase you know for for those that 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 need an a kind of an external party to help them will pull together signals that are um based on your own business you know i think one of the things to understand about intent is it's the same for everybody meaning like if h say hp is a, is one of your target accounts and they've we've seen like bombora shows that they're surging because they um, consumed a piece of content related to your category, everybody in your category will get that same signal, right? So, you know, data models that predict who can buy your product have to be much more sophisticated than that. And if you think about all the complexity in every business, they have to take in so much that we have to be able to deliver models that are customized to individual businesses. And for some businesses, you know the website signal on certain pages are going to be the 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 you know the strongest feature you know in you know, these data models is called a feature right the, the the heaviest weighted feature will be you know consumption on your own site it'll just so happen that for other companies the heaviest weighted feature may be a tech stack and we see that because we're getting into these models and i think the future is models that take in massive data sets about your go to market tell you who's going to become a customer and ultimately what action you should take, and then ultimately automate that action. And that's going to be the self-driving go-to-market that is going to come in the future. And then Terminator robots are going to come in. <laughs>
0: <laughs> like If you think of like B2B companies, like there's there's one on one side, like this core demand generation motion. And on the other side, there's like a customer education. Um, and, you know, at SafeGraph where I work, like we find that most of the companies we talk to are not ready to buy today. and Maybe they come back like six to 12 months later and buy. So how how should a company like a typical B2B company think about that buyer journey?
1: Yeah. Um, I, I think that it's probably the simplest mental model that comes up a lot is the the pyramid of one to many, one to few, and one to one. You know, I or else I, I kind of align that with TAM, in market best customers. Right. And so you want to know the one-to-many or the TAM is you want to have a model that you understand. You want to be as focused as possible. Cause you said, I want, you want to educate your customers. Do you have a good model to know who your customers could be? It's not everybody, right? Even those the ones that aren't in market. So that's where it usually comes down to what industries, you know, what size companies, what's their tech stack. So you understand their TAM. Then the next level up is and, and there you're going to have to make a decision is like a global enterprise, again, has the ability to just be branding, branding them, you know, probably, you know, companies like ours that are growing companies, you
0: have to weigh your budget. We can't blanket like the San Francisco airport with yeah. our, our logo or something. Yeah, like that. you're
1: not going to be on one on one right with that. So so but there's, there's there is some level of like ongoing nurture you can do pretty effectively at that tam, the TAM level. And it's about the agreements across sales and marketing, you know, so maybe you have a Marketo and an outreach campaign that's the, you know, from across sales and marketing, that's going across your TAM. And then the next level of investment is, is that the one to few or in market, and that's based on, okay, your intent provider, your, your website, you're, you're moving through that account-based funnel and demand basis product actually enables you to customize the account based funnel so it's a when a certain account reaches this level of engagement based on your own customized model. Then you move to this different level of kind of of action that's demanded so the sales team has to do more marketing has to do more. And then you have the one to one one to one air quote or what I like to think about is like your strategic accounts and they're either ones that are in market or. Uh, but you know are going to be like huge spenders, and you want to you want to invite them to events. You know you're going to take them to the Warriors game, right? Um, or their current customers that have sets of products that you know. Or, or exhibiting behavior and gain sight or whatever like that, that shows that there can become much bigger customers. And that has the highest level of marketing and sales investment. So I think that like that, that mental model um, of, again, the one to many, one to few, one to one, or you could think of it as TAM in market strategic accounts is a good way to think about your marketing investment and then having tools like demand base that can automate how much activity across sales
0: and marketing across the three. At least for us, like we've made a strategic change. I'd be interested in hearing some of your other companies have done uh, where like a lot of our content you know, in, in the past was gated. And so we would require some sort of lead capture and email or something like that to see the content. Uh, and recently we've ungated most of our content. So that means we're less likely to get an email, but they're more likely to see the content. We, we decided to make that trade off. Uh, like, have you seen people... Go through journey or they have they made different decisions along the way or how do how do they start to think about some of these things
1: in general that that's been the trend is that because you know how how often do you want to fill a form <laughs> you know it's like it's just p it's just a behavioral change that's happened so i mean I, I would say most of the companies that we work with have done the
0: same and i would highly recommend so we were late to the game yeah
1: yeah well there's there there's a big of a, a bit of a nuance where You know, I think when you're getting into an advertising strategy, there's a case to be made about like fun, like the content that gets lower and lower in the funnel. So like maybe the first level of content that when they're visiting your site for the first time, there's no gating, but when, you know, they return or are retargeted, it's that second visit, that's the gate. So there's a lot of good experimentation. So I don't think anybody's saying like never gate. It's just on the first visit with that initial content level, it's, it's not, you get more gain
0: letting them see the content than getting it. Right, especially like, who knows, they may not be actively looking at that particular time. So just because they filled out a, a lead doesn't mean they're ready to talk to a salesperson. In fact, they may specifically not want to talk to a salesperson. Yeah, well, yeah. And
1: I mean, there is this kind of relation. I mean, generally what you'll find is for, for lead capture, there's a higher, there tends to be, a higher conversion rate for smaller businesses, <laughs> you know, and, or in large businesses, people that probably aren't decision makers, you know? So you're not, another way to put that is the likelihood you're that you're getting you get the worst leads. Yeah. <laughs>
0: decision, yeah. maker, decision maker filling out a form is, is probably pretty low. Demandbase has done some, so a lot of acquisitions recently, you've acquired InsideView, Engageo, and, and actually a few other companies in the last few years. Walk me through the thought process of like why you've decided to like focus on some of these acquisitions and how you ended up buying these companies.
1: Yeah, um, it's pretty, in, I mean, each, each were differing and it was an interesting journey. So the, the Engagio one, I think was was a real, um, was a big one for us. And I, and I think a big one for the ABM category, the account based marketing category which we're in, which was, it was, you know, kind of the genesis of it was about two years ago. My background was I've been at DemandBase for for nine years. I was leading sales for kind of the first seven, and so I stepped into the CEO role at the end of 2019. And, and ABM was an interesting place because I think those that have been around the industry have been hearing it for a while. There was a really high level of awareness of the category. There was just there was a lot of confusion
0: about it, though, as a category. The idea of ABM also is just a weird thing. It's like uh, basically it, it it's it, SEO is kind of simple. We're going to do one marketing strategy. It's simple. And here's the way it works. ABM, it's like, we're going to focus on a small number of accounts and we're going to do like a thousand marketing strategies to those small accounts. So it can get very confusing very quickly, right? Yeah,
1: exactly. It's like, there's a complexity. It's also, if you just think of the term account-based marketing, like it's not like marketing automation, which is like intuitively, oh, it's Marketo, it's Eloqua. It was more like you know a field marketer or an SDR can do something, and that's account-based marketing. In fact, that's sometimes what a, a good AE does is like yeah, an
0: account-based Oh, I do that them. already, you know. But it's like so
1: so we were like people wanted technology, but they were confused. And we what, what was happening is adoption was stalling because when there's confusion like that, you have one champion maybe at your account that, that gets it the way demand-based does it. Somebody else thinks it's a different way. So basically the goal was at that point, like how do we define this category so it's like marketing automation in a way or any other, you know, CRM where it's like, you know, the vendors, you you know, the key technologies. And so we started to think about it. There's a data level where, you know, you have to have a 360 view of an account. You can kind of think of that as an embedded CDP where it's first and third party data. There's a decision layer where you have to segment based by account Kind of measure that account funnel i talked about and then there's a delivery kind of slash orchestration level, level where you're doing things through channels that are optimized for accounts to move your metrics and so okay we're like that could be the core core platform for account-based marketing what do we do well and what do we not do well you know demand base has been known known had been known for that you know core de-anonymization of the website and, and advertising So we wanted to be better at bringing in first party data and working with sales. So essentially it was like, what are our holes? Let's go build them. And at that point, you know, I knew John Miller who was the founder of Marketo and you know him well, and then founder of um, Gageo and we met and it was just essentially it was like, wow, we've got the same, (laughs) same vision and you've done the exact inverse. So it was like one of those moments where you're like, I'm gonna decide in one conversation that we're gonna to come together, and I don't know if you remember the um, the '80s uh, cartoon Voltron. Uh, but no, I know. You don't remember Voltron? What... Well, you could do the YouTube. It was like lions coming together into a giant robot. It was like Japanese, and so that oh, was kind of like the we really yeah, put yeah, together. So, cool. like, let's form Voltron. <laughs> <laughs> like a theme song. So we—that was the genesis of that, and by and large, you know, it really has panned out in like the category. How did you do
0: the acquisitions? Like, you know, is it because these acquisitions of private, com, private to private companies are very difficult? Obviously, you could pay in cash. You could, uh, you could, and that that could be by selling equity or by are se- getting debt. Um, there's you could do stock related things like how do you do it in a way that like aligns everybody
1: yeah i mean like like you said like private to private generally is considered pretty tough because the value isn't a defined currency (laughs) like it is on the public markets Right? in general in general you're not sitting on a ton of ton of cash typically to to do a whole cash transaction so you, you have to have the, you really have to have the common vision and believe in the future currency of like of the stock, essentially, and and have trust. And I've been very thankful that all the CEOs that we acquired are key members of the teams have trust. So generally, they've been equity transactions. You know, some of them have had some cash component as as well. But I would I would say as a rule, if you're going to do these, from my perspective, if you're going to do the private to private, there's got to be a joint belief in the
0: future equity. Both sides have to believe that. You know, from your side, you're giving up dilution. And then the other side, they're giving up control and they both have to agree that the 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 equity in the combined company has to be a lot more valuable than the, you know, the relative equity in my company, rather than the, the equity they had before. Correct.
1: You have to have that and you're, you have to see it and really trust, um, you know, trust your CEO, you know, that that's going to be on the, on this journey with you that you have the same vision.
0: Engager was, was interesting inside view. It's slightly different, where uh, you know you're you're almost getting into a new space. Is that the way you think about it? And, and it's kind of like a it's obviously an adjacent space to where you already are. Uh, so how how do you think about that that type of acquisition?
1: Yeah, that was a that was a different thought process. Like kind of what, what you're getting at is right. Is it was more of an adjacency and it's really about an expansion of demand base. So we're moving beyond ABM to, to go to market. And I think you're starting to hear the modern go to market um come up more. You know, some, of, I think you'll see the analysts like Gartner and, and Forrester in the next couple of years start to converge a lot of this, a lot of the things that are separate categories now. And we're really trying to solve the big problem of the modern customer journey. So there's a lot of different ways to look at it. One, one like simple bridge from ABM is like, when you say like, why does ABM break down? It's a lot of times it's because of the, their customers own data, you know? So like we were, you know, when we surveyed and asked like, what's, what is the biggest problem? It was like, my, the data is not clean. So we're like, okay, you got to solve that problem to make the go to market. And inside view was a, you know, leader in contact and firmographic data. And then, activating sales on these digital signals and inside you also had sales intelligence, which is kind of essentially sales prospecting. So to make, you know, to build from the ABM strategy and make it more successful, we made the decision to go into these adjacencies. We also see a broader things happening like data converging with application and you're seeing zoom info doing that and DNB doing that. And, you know, so we kind of see the future market of being these combined data, Application
0: companies. And to me, that's an interesting thing. So if you think yeah. of like Zoom Info, just really just a year ago, and, and, and it was clearly a data company and really just sold data. And then they've made a bunch of acquisitions in the last few years to maybe get them closer to demand base. And then demand base was clearly an application company. Now you've made a big acquisition to move you sl- closer to to Info, So there's this convergence that's happening that maybe someone like me wouldn't have expected. I would have thought people would have been more focused on on like being best of class and maybe something narrow. And it looks like people are making a decision to do the fuller stack. I mean, maybe because clients are demanding it or why do you think this is this movement has been happening? It's got to start with the client, right? Or the customer
1: and the disruption in, in, in the customer journey that I started out, out with. I think that that disruption is causing... Um, a change in the tech stack. I mean, they're, because they're basically what most companies are living with is that core marketing automation is demand gen, which is outside of HubSpot. Most of them are kind of stagnating, right? So, and HubSpot's mostly down market. So you're, you're talking about their companies that are, have a marketing automation at the core demand gen where it's like you need that lead and leads aren't happening and then you're spamming them with email. I'm overstating it, but you get the, get the point. You know, they've got... Uh, of number of, of data vendors. You know, I've, you, you know, this space more than me, but like I have licensed a lot of data. And one of the things that I found in data vendors is it's frustrating, you know? Cause there's a lot of them, there's some nickel and diming. There's not a lot of accuracy. So I think there's an opportunity for like big trusted data vendors to emerge and be friendly. <laughs> <laughs> so, so there's, there's that. And also
0: ideally it's the data is true, right? In some ways, the most important thing for data is that it actually is true. Yeah. Yeah. To make it as accurate as, as we possibly can. Whatever the one represents. So even if they represented like someone from General Electric read this content, like at least that is true. I mean, maybe that's not predictive of anything, but at least we know that someone from General Electric did read this content at this time.
1: Yeah, so we can make it like a controlled part of our future experiment, you know, as opposed to something that's misrepresenting itself. Yeah. Another and another big part of the go to market, which demand base has been strong on, is advertising. You know, and and there's this most of most companies rely on B B2, B2B companies rely on B2C ad tech, and there's a big difference between B2B and B2C ad tech, which is very interesting because if you think of B2C ad tech, it's really about targeting an individual and there's either brand use cases or like essentially retargeting. And, and, you know, like the, the sales cycles for B2C are completely different for B2B. So like, you know, I'll look at uh, how much do I want to reveal? I look at boots, you know, or some, whatever, and the boots follow you around the internet. Right. And that it's, it's going to transact within 36 to 48 hours. It's a hundred to $250 or less product. And that's, and B2B it's these hundred thousand dollar products with, 50 decision makers so we also saw there was an opportunity to change ad tech so we just feel i mean to answer your question about why is it converging versus a piece of it because we're at this unique moment where the whole b2b customer journey has been blown up and like we're racing to provide a modern go-to-market stack and you know i think the data is you know intimately wound up in it
0: like a company strategy perspective you could you could make two di- both different cases right you can make one case we're, we're going to pick our competitors we're going to try to pick as few competitors as possible really win the category and be the clear winner in that category but obviously it'll only provide a very narrow slice of the solution um, so that's the downside. The other side is, hey, we're going we're gonna to really fit the whole solution or, or a much, much bigger piece of the solution. We're going to have a much bigger competitive set because now, now we've got, instead of four competitors, three competitors, we've got 50 or something right? in this bigger competitive set where it, it, it'd be hard to be like the best in every single functionality. You know, there's pluses and minuses on both, but it does seem like people are moving much more to the latter than the former right now like that's where the market is is seems to be moving to whereas like maybe a, a lot of these SaaS companies are like this it's like a niche API or a niche set that does like this one random thing for like your dev stack or something.
1: Exactly. I think it depends on on kind of where your your core your core product what is its relationship in, into the tech stack right. So if you think of Zoom info they've got this massive data set and prospecting tool, which, which is really strategic for, for um, their customers. And because, because it is, they, that's the hub and they can build spokes around it. And I think demand base is in a similar position in that like ABM has found itself kind of converging with marketing automation. So there's this kind of hub aspect to the core kind of, marketing pl- automation platform that's evolved and you want to get the spokes around it i'm not so you got to look at every business differently i think for our business we have the opportunity to be this hub and spoke like which has long-term growth other other businesses not to be pejorative but like you you, you end up you're you know you're you know what you're good at and you got to focus on it and and i think there's there's merit to both but i, I think and also you got to understand the competitive landscape. I mean, we, we see the company started to move, move in our direction. So we got to move in, in that direction too. So there's a lot, a lot to think about, but it is a really interesting time in this space.
0: Well, a couple of questions for you about just like running companies in general. So I heard you run really good board meetings. Like what, what's the secret to running an effective board meeting?
1: Um, the, the number one secret is to, be have it run on time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. That doesn't seem like the hardest thing to do. <laughs> I mean it is. I don't know. Yeah. But I mean there's others. Sure so like if you give like a 30 minute slot to sales like they don't take more than 30 minutes. Well, in ge- in general that you're monitoring like I'll have a clock because what
1: happens is um and I'll give some credit to Stacy Bishop at Scale for nudging nudging me in this direction when I was moving into the seat CEO role but like basically as your board gets bigger, like we have, we have board members, we have board observers, we have our management team. So our board meeting is, you know, probably twenty to twenty-five people in like kind of the general session. So there's there's a lot that can, a lot of questions that can be asked. So so you can very quickly cover, you know, get lost in one topic. So I, I do I do think just managing it on time. But um, you know, going a little deeper than that, I think it, it's it's important to have that everybody has a shared context on where the business is going. So uh, that, and that means continually focusing both on sh- long-term strategy and also the, the, your short-term challenges and being open to that. I think what maybe sometimes happens is you get real focused on, on the given quarter or the given year. And so there's not broader context. So there's some mis- misalignment in the way people think about things. I also think there maybe sometimes there's some reluctance to show your warts to the board, but they end up getting surprised. So I definitely you know try to be transparent and open. Um, so I think having that. So if alone, there's
0: bad news. Are you sending it out to them like well in advance of the board meeting? Hey, uh, yeah. you know where? what, like obviously people don't hit their numbers every month or something, or you know, or or, or obviously you have key employees that depart or those types of things. Mm-hmm. Are you letting them know like well ahead of time?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I really try to have like a no surprises (laughs) rule. I mean, the world's a surprising place. So, so it's hard, hard to avoid surprises, but, um, and then I, you know, I will like one thing that I do is I I try to have each board meeting, have like a theme you do like four a year kind of typical For a year once, once a quarter. And then, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of the other thing is like, I'll come out of a board meeting and, I try to, visualize, try to visualize like, what's the next one? Cause you, there's always really good feedback and there's always things like you didn't do well maybe. And they're like, or questions they asked and you're like, oh, I should have done that. <laughs> so, so it's like, I try to like, I'll usually like at least give something with the management team is like, okay here's what we're gonna do in the next one. So you just try to make it better. So those are, those are some of the
0: things. And how do you think about executive compensation, including like your you know your own compensation CEO, like how do you think how do you align that in the right way for the company, et cetera?
1: Yeah, I mean, well, we have a comp committee, like probably like most boards, just to make sure that it's it's all you know it, it's we're not defining our own own comp. I mean generally at a broad broad level, um you know as you move up in the organization, you're more you're obviously you're more tied into equity, you know, the variable component of, of our executive pay, we do all on company metrics and generally they're, they're kind of renewal rate
0: operating profit or loss. Let's say you have five different executives that they may have a different total variable. One of them may them might have a variable of X, one may have a variable 1.4 X or something like that, but the percentage of the variable is, is all the same for each of them. The, the, the measures of how they're paid out are all the same. Yeah, so it's like so. so you'll you know, they might get one hundred and twenty percent of the variable or eighty percent of the variable, but they all get that same percentage based on how well the company did.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And the, and the the weighting of the measures are 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 the same. I mean, I think like generally, if we're going to be punitive on variable, like um, try to be most punitive with the executives you know with equity you've got to have a policy for ongoing like people that have been there a long time ongoing like kind of refresh what's your what's your policy for like refresh grants for employees and executives that have been there a long time you, Essentially,
0: your go forward comp you can't just look at like how much equity they have if a demand base has been around for a long time you may have i mean obviously you've been there for nine years yeah so people may have had multiple grants during that time yeah yeah exactly so those are those are the some of the 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 things we think about. I guess maybe a self-serving question. I know, like um, a couple bunch of my former colleagues from LiveRamp are now at DemandBase. Right? You have Brian Morris is your CFO. Allison Metcalf is your CRO. I know you have recently brought on like many other LiveRampers, like Chris Tata, who's like an amazing BD guy. Um, like, is was there something about that culture you fit, thought felt with the DemandBase culture, and have you? Done this playbook with other types of companies that you really liked, or how, how does this, or is it just kind of happen organically without like a plan?
1: LiveRamp is is obviously it's a great company that you founded. um I think there was there was two aspects of it. One is you know Allison and I had actually worked together early days of demand based like eight, eight years ago, and you know I would just have huge respect for her and just. You know, I think there's a cultural similarity. And I think, you know, you knew LiveRamp, like she came in and she was really there. So I think naturally, like some of the type of people were, were similar. And then the, the, there is like just technology kind of analogies, like that LiveRamp is so focused on identity and if, and you know, like the D, D what the website, dn yeah, notification is, is about business identity. So we, we, demand base is obviously more squarely in business. Live ramp has, has been more B2C it's gotten into business. So I think that identity piece and understanding identity, and then a live ramp was just a really complex business in my mind, you know, like for, for like kind of essentially a marketing and sales business, you know, data more complex, like trying to, understand, you know, the onboarding and all the plumbing stuff that, that you, that you did, there is some analogies to like that category definition we have to did. So I just think there's like familiarity. Um, you know, there was something similar, like early days of demand days. Um, you know, I, I had a publishing background and, um, like average advertising for like big publishers. And what I found was, you know, that was a really, that became really hard because the business model got crushed over time in publishing. And cause you lost the subscription base and advertising moved more to like programmatic, digital, all that stuff, search, all that. And so what you found was there was a really, a lot of good kind of salespeople because the way they had to sell was like really thin differentiation of audiences. And so. It kind of tapped into like some of some of our core people that we saw the demand base kind of came from that background in certain companies. So you know you want to be respectful of the company and make sure that you know if you're getting employees like you're doing it in the right way.
0: Um, but sometimes there's just there's these natural bridges between companies. Makes sense. Okay, a couple of personal questions. So uh, I know you've been in demand base for nine years and the first seven as you mentioned were kind of like in sales you kind of became the sales leader and then you eventually became the CEO. Not not too many people kind of like work their way up to the top job at a startup. That, that maybe happened to like a really big company, but not, not a startup. Like, what do you think other people can learn from your journey? Being passionate about your business, you know, and,
1: you know, wanting to solve your customers' challenges. So I always found this business that, you know, Chris Golick founded really interesting. I, I kind of felt in some of the early employees that we had, you know. You know, Greg Odd, our first CMO, was a great, great CMO who def- kind of helped to define the category. I, I really believed in their vision, and then, but it, there was all these um, business issues that we had. As every business has, and as you take on revenue responsibility, you can kind of follow the chain. Okay, like this: this customer is having this issue. Why is that? And I think it's like kind of that. Essentially, it comes down to are you going to keep following that breadcrumb trail, whether you're responsible for it or not, and, and try to solve the problem? You know, you don't want to to solve other people's problems for them or feel like you're getting in their, uh, you know, in their business when you shouldn't be, but if you do it the right way over time, you know, I think that that's essentially how how you progress is like you're solving business problems. The other thing is like, I I really like, like, to be around people and try to be a person that runs towards like the biggest challenges. You know, I think that sometimes happens where man, this is a scary challenge in our business, or you know, this really isn't going right. And the, sometimes the tendency is like, okay, I'm getting my resume out there. Yeah, yeah. Or that's not my like, problem or something. That's someone yeah, else's. Yeah, it's like this problem. is how are we going to solve this? And what you don't realize is like somebody will solve it, <laughs> you know, and that person that solves it they're going to take on new skills and they're going to get a, a good, you know, hopefully they'll, you know, they'll, they'll be rewarded for it. So I think running towards like some of the biggest, most gnarly challenges is really exciting.
0: You studied comparative literature and Russian in college. Yeah. Um, I would say that is not the most common major for tech <laughs> CEOs or similar background. Like how is some of those studies prepare you to lead kind of a thriving company? I have a little bit of a theory about, about about that, not like Russia in particular, but
1: humanities in general, like, and my kids are getting to college age. Um, so I think about it, but I, I think there's a lot of value in studying humanities in general, because it just gets you to think in interesting ways about certain themes, understanding people, certain, uh, you know, just appreciation for maybe like, almost like a business is a work of art, you know, in a way, you know, like to create a good, it's creative. And so I think there's value in studying that. I mean, I I think if you're, if you know, you want to be in finance or you want to be an engineer, it's really important you get those domain specific skills. So you want to be studying those things, but I often do think, and there's no, like, there's many ways to skin the cap. but I think if you're going to go into general business ownership or marketing or, or sales, like, you're not going to get humanities later,
0: probably, but you will get, you will get the business side of things. So, somebody like me, like I was a, you know, I was an engineer and basically mostly did like math and data stuff in college. Like people like me, we're, we're missing those, the deep truths or something like that. <laughs> but, I don't know. I feel like you have a pretty good uh, you have a way of
1: synthesizing things, but um I I mean, like I said, there's a lot of ways to skin the cat, but I I do think, I think if you want to study humanities, it really has behooved me, you know, because I think I've been able to think of things pretty broadly and I still have an interest in it.
0: Now, I heard a rumor that you wear a blue shirt every day to work. Is that true? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I have gone to this
1: like uniform state. And um, so I always wear. I have three different versions of light light blue. I don't know how it's been many years. And 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 really, it started with one of our uh, one of our employees uh, saying, <laughs> <laughs> just like you know, this this particular shirt seems to be fit you pretty well. And then it became like you know how it is like in an early company. We were probably, you know, 100, 200 people and things take on a life of their own a little bit. And like, you know, one of the things I find as like a CEO or an executive that I I really like is like, can you make fun of yourself or you can become like a running joke? And so like, I just kind of became a running joke. Like the the SDR team at one event, like, or, or wear blue shirts. But then what I found was, and maybe you appreciate as an as an engineer, like, I'm like, I look in my closet and there's no decision. Right. So
0: it's like, it's become so efficient. Anyone who's ever seen me on any video. I wear this shirt, the shirt every day, which is kind it, of a blue collared shirt. It, and it, it just, this is one less decision I have it's to make just every so, day. It's so beautiful. I'm like, okay, I, I don't have to make any decisions. So anyway, that's the fact. I don't know how
1: long it'll last, but it's been years.
0: <laughs> last question we ask all of our guests, what is the, the conventional wisdom or advice that you think is generally bad advice?
1: Yeah. I'm going to give something pretty practical, I think, I hope for for like executives or sales leaders, which is it's related to sales hiring. And I think one piece of confidential wisdom that comes, especially as you're growing, is hire more salespeople. And I think there's this ongoing uh, strain, especially you'll find it like maybe there's an executive at a big company that's carved up really small territories and they come in as the sales leader and like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hire. It sounds really good in a board meeting, but the reality is it very rarely does that solve your your scale issue in and of itself. Because usually if you peel back sales productivity, that's where the biggest gains are. Because you'll have a few people that, especially early on, that are performing really well, that make it look like your whole sales team is performing well, and you don't actually have... You want to be looking at a heat map of people that are. How many people are achieving quota? What's your sales cycle? Those are bigger drivers in
0: my mind often than hiring more salespeople. Now that being said, we're hiring a lot of salespeople. One of the things that we look at is just like how many qualified opportunities do you have per salesperson, or basically how many deals are they working? Um, If they're working too many deals on, then maybe we do need some more. But a lot of a lot of times the problem is we're not working enough deals. Uh, so like adding more might not be the problem, you know, might not solve the problem. Uh, like we just, we need to get more in their pipe before we go hire. Like, how do you think about when to hire more and when to really scale up?
1: There's a certain
0: level There's like
1: pragmatism to it, but like there's tops down, which is, okay, we have to grow a certain amount. You know, you have to look at quota size and there, there is a certain level of, okay, we need to start, we, we probably need to grow, but then the nuance of, of how big the quota actually is to get there. Is you know there's a few key fa- there's three or four key factors. Are you hitting your pipeline numbers? To, to, you know, do you have a waterfall that's that shows your what pipeline you need to hit your your plan? Uh, are you in the zone of reps of of consistency of reps hitting quota? Like you know, you, you hear different things and there's different draconian level of being draconian on it, but like, are 50 percent of your reps hitting quota? you know, or 60, you know, so you want to get a good number and what are, what are your sales cycles? And then what are your win rates? You know? So you want to be like mid twenties in your win rates. You want to know that you've done from opportunity to close one. Yeah. I mean, and there's, there's different formulas, how you create win rates, but like, that's, that's general. You think of, you know, win rates, you're hitting your pipeline quota uh, capacity, like that those are all on track and then those should, now the flip side of it is if you're really hitting all those, it's like higher, 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 higher. You know? <laughs> yeah, then it's an easy
0: decision. Yeah. This has be really great. Where where can people find you on the interwebs?
1: Well, I'm I guess mainly on LinkedIn. That's definitely that's that's where I tend to do most of my stuff. But if anybody wants to reach out, you know, hit me up on on
0: email but or LinkedIn. Perfect. Awesome. Great. Really, this has been really fun. Thank you for joining us on World of Death. Yeah, it's really great to talk to you, Aaron. Talk to you later. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of DAS, and DAS is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at, at Orin, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you. World of DAS is brought to you by SafeGraph.